Amen. You know, Joey, if I could sing like you, I'd sing 24-7. That's just a fact. I really would. Huh? <laughs> oh, goodness. Good worship tonight. I mean, just good. I'm, in, I'm enjoying it, and, and I'm sorry that, yes, absolutely. I don't apologize for worshiping. I just apologize that I lost track of everything that was going on in the church a moment ago. But uh, listen, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Whenever we say to let go and to center your attention in on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's what we're talking about. It's about worshiping him and honoring him. It's not the ceremony of church, although I believe that the house of God should be respected and honored for what it is. But it's not the ceremony so much that is important as the love, the adoration, the surrender, the repentance, the devotion to Jesus Christ that is important. Because without sincere and legitimate worship, nothing else that we do here means anything. We can have the biggest church. We can have all the bells and whistles. You can have, as some churches I've been in, you can have organs so big that the organ itself probably would not fit in this church. And if you don't have Jesus in it, it's just like the Bible says, a clanging cymbal and sounding brass. That's all it is. You're just making noise. But you can take a place that has nothing. You can take a prison, kind of like where Paul and Silas and even Peter wound up at certain times. You can take an old nasty hole in the ground, and if you open your heart to God, there is God in your midst. You have church. That's right. We are his people. All right, if you will, we're going to be in the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to be in chapter 21 here in just a moment. And uh, where we'll start, um, trying to see. I can't remember what I told you on the, uh, earlier today. Okay, eight. Yeah, that's where we're going to start. We're going to 21 and verse 8. That's exactly right. I'm glad y'all were listening. Okay, 21 and verse 8 here in just a moment. But let me give you some background. Paul is nearing the end of things. That is, Paul realizes that before too terribly much longer, he is going to go be with God. And you can read this in Paul's letters, okay, as he is writing to these churches, and he's trying to encourage them. It's not that Paul comes in and he just writes a letter to tell them everything that they're doing wrong. Paul is trying to assure that these men and women of God continue to follow Jesus Christ faithfully. He wants them to serve him in spirit and in truth from their hearts, holding nothing back. That petty squabbles and things like that, cast them aside. That we take uh, our walk, our relationship with Jesus Christ, that we take it seriously. And that we do not live as the people of the world, nor do we engage in those things that the world might engage in that are sinful. Now, he's not saying to separate yourselves and, and never speak to a lost person. If that was the case, then we couldn't be in the world. Those are his words. But what he is saying is not to tarnish or not in any way give an occasion for somebody to blaspheme the Lord because we reject him or we turn away from him. Okay? To live faithfully, as uh, the scripture says, to produce, to produce, if I can speak English, fruits worthy of repentance, showing that we love and we serve him, to be faithful. 
And one of the things that Paul has said, and we're, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of this, I guess, here in a little while, but Paul has been warned. He says, and, and you don't have to turn here, I just want you to listen to it because we shared this last week. I just want you to hear the words. He says, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going there. He's bound in the Spirit. He has to go. He knows it. So this is what God would have him to do. He says, not knowing the things that are going to happen to me there. Well, is he saying he has no idea? No. He's saying, I don't know exactly what's going to happen except for this. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So Paul knows that whenever he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to wind up being arrested. He's going to wind up in, in, in shackles and chains, probably in prison. He knows that this is going to happen. And many people have tried to say, well, Paul, if you know this, don't go. And you know, as human beings, this is a normal response. If you knew that a Christian leader, let's say in America, let's say for whatever reason, during the time of Billy Graham, and you've got these mighty crusades that were going on, and you found out that if Billy Graham were to go to a certain place, that he was going to wind up being arrested, you would probably look and say, well, you know, Brother Graham, uh, you probably don't want to go there. We still need more crusades. We need more ministry. We need more people to hear about Jesus Christ. It is more advantageous for you to be free than to be in prison, except for one thing, if that is the will of God. If the place he will testify, if the places he will go, if those people for which he has chosen him to minister in those places that will ultimately wind him up in chains or in prison is the will of God in that people that otherwise might not come to know him. See, in our minds, we want to do everything that we can, there's nothing wrong with this, to try to preserve and help. But we also need to recognize that God has his will, and sometimes the path that he asks us to walk is very, very difficult. Some people will be martyred, and that is the will of God. And some people say, well, it's a tragedy that Christians have to die for the faith. Absolutely. But also understand Jesus died too. And that was the plan of God. What some people might have looked at and said it was the biggest tragedy of all of creation that the son of the living God would come into this world to reveal his father and then we wind up murdering him. How can that be the will of God? My friends, that was the plan of God. The Bible refers to Jesus Christ as the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. It is in God's plan, and it is the way, the way that God has chosen for us. So what Paul realizes is where many people might be looking at him and saying, Paul, you don't want to go do this. Paul is sitting there going, you don't understand. The Holy Spirit is telling me in my heart, I must go. But Paul, you're going to wind up in chains. The Holy Spirit has told you you're going to wind up in chains. Yes, I understand that that awaits me, but that will not deter me. It's still the plan of God for me, and I'm going to go. And we're going to see this witnessed again. So if you will go to Acts chapter 21 and starting in verse 8, God bless the reading of his word. And it says, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered into the house of Philip the evangelist. Now let's catch up with this. Philip the evangelist, you got to go back, I think, to chapter 5 or chapter 7, in uh, Acts, whenever the deacons are chosen, he was one of the seven deacons, and he's also an evangelist. If you look at the list of deacons, you have Stephen mentioned, and then you'll have Philip mentioned. 
okay? So these are people that were full of the Spirit of God, okay? And loved the Lord and followed him. And here we have this deacon who is also an evangelist, and he is ministering. But I want you to see God also in his household. This is interesting to, to take notice of. Praise you, Jesus. It says, Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, interesting point here. Did everybody catch this? It didn't say he had four sons who prophesied. It said four daughters. And people, I share this not for the purposes, you know, people say, well, what are you saying, pastor? What about? I'm not saying anything. I'm quoting scripture. Just listen to me. Don't assume what I'm going to say. People, regardless of a person's position on who is to stand in the pulpit as a pastor, and it's my conviction that, that it's supposed to be a man. But let me tell you this, that does not mean that women cannot minister in some capacity, in some way. Let me give you an example. The scripture we just read. His daughters served in the gift of prophecy. Does that mean they hid in back rooms and they just spoke to women who happened to be passing by? No, it means that God gave them messages. And God did minister indeed through them. If you remember, whenever Jesus Christ was born, he comes to the temple. The prophetess was there and prophesied over him. If you go into the Old Testament, when Josiah, you know, is king, and they find the law written in there, and he sends, he says, we need to go seek out a prophet. Guess who they sought out? Hold up, a female prophet, prophetess, who proclaimed, thus saith the Lord. The reason why I say that is I never want in the church for people to turn around and say, because you're a woman, you can't do stuff and you can't be used by God in ministry. You will find in churches that women many times are doing far more than the men do. What I'm trying to do is solidify and verify from scripture that women too can be used of God. That's all I'm saying. Take that for what it's worth. Now that I have the women on my side, Men are like, you need to be quiet. Them women need to be silent in church. That's what the scripture says. So y'all be quiet. No, tell your wife to be silent in church. Knock yourself out. Let me know how that turns out for you. (laughs) Last time Miss Phyllis's husband did that, you see what happened to her wrist? She swapped him. (laughs) Forgive me, I'm being awful here. Okay, so anyway, verse 10, it says, And they stayed many days. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named, now here comes a male prophet, a prophet named Agabus, okay, came down from Judea. It says, when he came to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, okay, the Spirit of God speaking through the early church. Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, so what's he saying? This is an object lesson. Prophets did this, and God called them to do it. And as a matter of fact, some of the stuff we're studying next door is right along this line. We're studying with some of the students. But I want you to get this. You remember Jeremiah. One of the object lessons that God gave him before they were getting ready to go into exile was he had him put a yoke on his neck. And he actually sent out yokes to the kings and the rulers that were around in the surrounding areas. And God had said this, because of your your rebellion and because of your sin, because you will not listen to me any other way, I am raising up Nebuchadnezzar and you will submit to him or you will die. If you will submit to him, you'll live, you'll prosper in the land, and eventually you will return. But you must submit. Well... 
he wore this yoke as an example, okay, of submission. If you go to (laughs) Isaiah for three years, now people don't look at me strange, this is in the Bible. He prophesied naked for three years, symbolizing to Egypt and to other countries that whenever the exile took place, that they would be so poor and so destitute, they wouldn't even have clothes to wear. Okay? Now, some people have said, well, maybe he had a loincloth. Well, I'm just telling you what the scripture says. And it talks about loosening up your belt and taking all your stuff off. So I'm just saying that that's what it said. And then let's go to another object lesson. If you think about Ezekiel, very strange prophet, by the way, but I like him. I like him a lot. But so God has him shave his head, take off his beard, and he has him chop it up with a sword, and then he has him burn some of it, symbolizing what's going to happen to. Uh, the Israelites as well has him make a model city there on the ground he has him lay siege to it and destroy it and then he has him lay on his side for like 300 and something days and he has to cook his food over dung yum yum so object lessons from prophets are no new thing okay God does this that people can see so what happens is this prophet comes in says Paul let me see your belt he ends up binding his hands and his feet and he said this is what the Jews are going to do to you they're going to bind you whenever you get there and they're going to deliver you to the Gentiles and we know ultimately what's going to happen is yes the Jews are going to turn on he's going to wind up being held handed over to the Romans okay so moving on so he lets him know now here comes that response of Paul we want you to be well please don't do this So in verse 12, it says, Now when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, listen to his heart, okay? Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to go bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That is beautiful. He said, don't break my heart. Don't make me want to disobey God here. You know, I see your pain and I don't want you to have this pain, but you have to understand this is what God has called me to do. So don't do this. And people, if you're worried about me suffering, he says, I I don't mind being bound. As a matter of fact, I don't even mind if I die as long as I'm doing it for Jesus. So an incredible man of God here. So whenever he would not be persuaded not to go, okay, we see saying, uh, they ceased, and then they said, the will of the Lord be done. And people, that's the proper response. Whenever we say, you know, your will be done, especially in prayers, I mean, that's what they're saying. The will of God, what you desire, Father, you know better than we do. God, we can't always see, and many times don't see what you see, but Father, your will be done. Okay, now you remember this whole dispute that we had some time back with the Gentiles coming into the church. We have all these converts. We've been studying this in Acts from the beginning. We've got Gentiles as well as Jews. They are coming into the church. Well, what do we do with these people? At the beginning, people were concerned because they were like, well, what is this message? The Bible indicates that all peoples would worship God, but how does that come together? How does that come together in Jesus Christ? Now, that's not to say Jesus didn't minister to Greeks as well, because he did. But they, being the chosen people of God, 
to whom the scriptures came, how do we deal with these Gentiles? And if you remember, there were some people that came in and said, no, you have to obey the law of Moses. Jesus is good. He is the fulfillment of God's promises, but ultimately you need Jesus and you need the law. And Paul said, nope, that ain't going to fly. It's Jesus plus or minus nothing. It's faith in Christ Jesus alone that saves. Now, in our faith and in our trust in Jesus Christ, although we are freed okay, from the letter of the law, we are still bound to the law of love and liberty and the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. That's what the Scripture tells us. In other words, God has now taken his truth, his law, his spirit, and he's placed it within us and written on the tablets, fleshly tablets of our hearts, his will. And now we walk in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Does that mean that law was bad? No, it reveals God's nature. How can it be bad? But it does mean, and here's the one thing where people made a mistake, People thought, if I obey the law and I do everything commanded in the law, which is good, but if I did those things, that somehow that would make me acceptable in God's eyes. And Paul said, here's the problem. Nobody obeys the law perfectly. And the law says this, that if you disobey in one detail, you are guilty of all. So how were people saved? Paul explains that at great length. And he explains that salvation has always been and always will be by faith. And his great example was Abraham. He said, as Abraham, before Moses even existed, before the law is given, Abraham believed, trusted, obeyed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So believing God, trusting him, and the actions that are associated with that, he said, because you trust and believe God, that is how you say, that's how it's always been to trust and believe God. And now we see it in its completeness and fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, here we go. So the Gentiles come into the, the, the family of God. We see in Cornelius, we see how the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles just the same as everybody else, and they are saved. So how do we deal with this? Because we've got these people over here that say you have to obey the law, obey the law of Moses. Well, what happens is they come back, and if you remember the Jerusalem Council, they sit down together, and people are like, one group's over here saying, no, they have to do this. We know the traditions of the elders. You have to obey the law. Paul's looking at them and saying, no, I don't think so, and it's not happening. He says, I've spoken to the Lord. God has made it abundantly clear to me. And if y'all have any questions about it, I am a Jew of Jews. I have the pedigree. He says, I'm so Jewish that if I walk in a room, five Gentiles become Jewish. I'm just kidding. Jewish by proxy. Okay. But he says, and I was so zealous in what y'all are promoting he said that I was killing Christians. I was imprisoning them. I was doing all these horrible things. He says, but folks, I met Jesus. And you know what you might say about him, that he was just a man, that he existed and he was an insurrectionist? No, he's the Lord of glory. He appeared to me from heaven. And it was Jesus I was persecuting. So God's made it abundantly clear to me how this stuff really works. And he, my friends, is the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of all, including Gentiles. So, they wind up there in the Jerusalem Council, and after they hear about all the signs and wonders, they hear that the Holy Spirit is given to the Gentiles just like everybody else. They give the decree, right? We're going to read this decree again. 
Again, it's going to be reaffirmed where they tell the Gentiles there's just a few things that you need to do, which had to do with certain ceremonial rites like not eating blood, things strangled, sexual immorality, things like that, so that Gentiles and Jews would be able to fellowship together because they knew certain things were just absolutely going to be non-starters from the beginning. There was no way that they were going to be able to do this. And they said, uh, our ancestors couldn't keep this perfectly. Why should we bind this up on you? And they said, so do these few things and you do well, nothing else. Okay. The people, they even said this, the people that came to trouble you or the people that wound up troubling you. He said, we didn't send them. But the people that we're sending now, along with Paul, and you remember Silas went with them. Silas was also a prophet. They come in and they explain to the people, no, you don't have to do this. Well, you would think that that solved it, right? The church had gotten together. The Jerusalem council has said, this is over. This is a done deal. The apostles have spoken. Well, evidently not. Now, imagine this for a minute. Now, don't, don't get angry at me and don't throw stuff at me. But imagine that the men and women of God have settled an issue, and then somehow, way, later on, you find out it really wasn't settled. Hmm. For those of you that can read between the lines, how many times has that happened in the church? People, we solved this issue at the business meeting of such and such, right? And yet you find out the same problems keep creeping up. And then you will look at them and say, stop it, stop it, stop it. Quit it, you know? Well, this is what's happening in the church, so you're going to see it again. Okay. So verse 15, it says, And after those days we packed up, I am in 15, right? I want to make sure. Okay. We packed and we went to Jerusalem. So he is going to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain... Uh, now, that's a new one on me. I don't know. What does yours say? Go to verse 16. Is that how it's spelled in your Bible? I was getting ready to say Mason. I don't recall. Okay, anyway, uh, what that says, people, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I know I've done a lot of studying, but I'm going to tell you, that's the first time I've seen this in the Scripture, being perfectly honest with you. And I read this today. Okay, moving on. So they, they brought one of them M's of Cyprus. I need to look that up. It says an early disciple with whom they were going to lodge, okay? And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, okay, the brother of Jesus, one of the pillars in the church. And all the elders were present. If you remember, James was the head of the Jerusalem council at that time. And when the, uh, he had greeted, uh, greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So we're hearing once again about what God's doing to the Gentiles. Okay, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And when they said to him, you see, brother, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. Now, let's unpack this for just a minute. You see, brother, you can see it on the screen. I'm looking behind you. It says, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. In other words, they're hearing the message of Jesus Christ, but there's also an issue. 
They are very zealous for the law. Now, before we condemn them and before we criticize them, understand, like we said before, one of the problems, the difficulties in the early church is that this is their life. To be a Jew is to walk with God. That may not be true today, but back then, you, this is your culture. This is your heritage. This is your everything. So the, the term Jew means, you know, your, your fellowship and obedience in your walk with God. So anyway, these people having this sacredness, this calling, this manner of conduct, the way that they have walked their entire existence and their ancestors tracing all the way back, you know, to Father Abraham and even through Moses, this is how they've lived. And so they are zealous for the things of God, in particular with Moses, they're zealous for the things of the law. So we've got a group of people that are saying, a bunch of them, that are saying, uh, this isn't settled yet. We still believe that you need to obey the law. What time do y'all have? I'm sorry, I don't have my watch on. 5.58, that sounds good. 5.58. So we got another hour. This is horrible. All right, so let's do it this way. I'll, I'll put this together and then we'll go ahead and close up. Okay, they're zealous for the law. Verse 20, 21 says, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to be circumcised uh, or they not, should not circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. That would be the traditions of the elders. What then the assembly must, must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Okay, so they're in panic, and here's where we'll stop. They're in a panic. They said, Paul, you're here. The news of you coming here is going to be noise abroad. And here's the problem. These people are spreading lies about you. And let me tell you what's happening. It's something worse than a lie. It's called a half-truth. Whenever you take a half-truth, you put just enough truth in it, or somebody can say, well, I heard him say this, and it ends up getting twisted, and it becomes very, very bad, and it becomes entrenched. So what's happening is they're saying, you're telling all the Gentiles that they need to forsake Moses. No, Paul never said to forsake Moses. As a matter of fact, Paul, if you notice, he's in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. Paul is serving and loving God according to the traditions of even the elders. The difference is, is that Paul recognizes that whenever Jesus Christ was crucified, the last absolute Passover lamb has been offered. You don't need to offer any more sacrifices after Jesus. What good are they? And if that sacrifice was offered, people are saved. They're forgiven through faith in him alone. God did this to say that Jesus is not enough. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here, but listen. It is basically to spit in the face of God's grace to say that Jesus Christ is not enough. And here's the deal. Paul's telling them, if you could live the law, knock yourself out. He says, but you can't. 
You'll never be able to live exactly what God wants for you because you're fallen, you're broken, you're in sin. And he said the law was given, yes, to reveal the moral nature of God, but it was designed to bring you to your knees and to show you that you can't and to ask God for forgiveness. Thus, year after year, we kept offering sacrifices. But God, who in the fullness of time, recognizing that men could not save themselves, has sent his son, his only son, into the world to do what we couldn't, to die in our place. And by coming to him, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law. And now, people, that doesn't mean we live to our flesh and live in our own free expression to live and do as we please and to live sinful, but now we live in submission to the Spirit of God within us that people, by the way, allows us to walk a more holy walk than the law ever thought it could give us. Because now we obey from the heart a new creation. Okay? So... Paul never said Moses was bad, wicked, or evil. Paul said the law was good. But what were they saying? They were saying, well, Paul's saying that the, that the law is wrong. And they said, no, no. Paul said the law is fulfilled. Say that you ought not circumcise your children. Did you know this? Paul didn't say that you couldn't circumcise your children. He said circumcising avails nothing as far as salvation. Paul had, you know, Timothy had him circumcised just to where they could have fellowship. It was the same thing that they asked the early church to do, uh, Gentiles, that is, whenever he said, please, you know, make sure that you abstain from these things so we can have fellowship. He wanted to make sure because they knew, you know, Timothy's mother and father, and they knew Timothy not being circumcised is an apostate Jew. They would never listen to him. He was a betrayer. He was out of the covenant. He was not circumcised on the eighth day, nor thereafter. So what does God do? He tells Paul, you know, it's okay. Let him be circumcised so that he can minister and he can do what he needs to do. Right? And then if you look up there, it says, ought not to circumcise our children to walk according to the customs. Let me tell you something. If you want to talk about customs, go back to Jesus. There were things that you could do, but there are things that you didn't have to do, such as eating with unwashed hands. Now, I know you don't want me telling this to your children because if they're out there making mud pies and all that kind of stuff and they come in to eat, I don't want them looking at you and say, the pastor says I don't have to wash my hands before I eat. Uh, No, that's when you look at them and say, and do you see the pastor around here? Do you see my foot around here? All right, then you need to get moving. Okay, but what Jesus was saying is that it's not, okay? Eating with unwashed hands does not defile you. He was, I guess you would say, explaining and showing and giving a more accurate view of what it was to serve God. And the fact is that it wasn't unwashed hands that was going to defile. It was what was coming out of their hearts that was going to defile. Okay. So as Paul's there, and we know that we're getting ready to get into a war with the Jews, or at least these zealous Jews, and what we'll do is this. Tonight, anybody special prayer? Anybody need to be anointed, special prayer, anything tonight? All right, let's do this. You stand with me.
Sunday evening, I'll also be talking about a little bit about the vision and where we're going to be going as church. Eventually, I'm going to be giving you handouts kind of as a track on how I believe and what I believe God is revealing to the body as a whole as well about where we're going to go and how we are going to minister to our community. But part of that involves repentance, and you've heard me say that last Sunday, and you're going to hear me say this again. Without repentance, without repentance, God isn't going to do anything. Let me rephrase that. God may discipline us. God may put in motion those things that will bring us to repentance, but until the human heart yields to God, which is part of repentance, until the human spirit is in submission to him, it's very hard to do anything. And you say, well, I love God and I want with him. Then you're the ones that understand what I'm talking about because you live in repentance. There is not a day, saints. You listen to me, and I mean this sincerely. There is not one day upon this earth that I exist that I do not repent before God. Because people, I sin and I fail. Now you're asking me, am I out there and I should I be on the most wanted poster? Probably not. I don't know. It depends on what happened in South Carolina. But that's prior Jesus. That's B.C. That's before Christ. Okay? If they know about that, yes. Notice this profile. You'll see it again. But here's what I am saying. Okay? Everyday repentance. Everyday submission. Everyday crying out to God. Repent and cry out for your church. So that this church will be. And I believe before too much longer that we're going to see. I know there's a lot of people. There's a lot of kids downstairs and a lot of people ministering right now. The saints, I would love to see this church packed. Not with pew warmers, but with hearts that are broken for Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, true and living God, please forgive us of our sins. Please forgive us where we let you down. God, we do not see. We think we see. But we don't see truly what God can and does see. Please forgive us, Lord God, of our sins. Please forgive us of the sins of this church. Every church makes mistakes. And some churches have flat out blown it. But we ask you to forgive us. And we, as representatives of this body, intercede for this church. And we ask you to forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, Lord, where we should have and didn't. And God, forgive us where we did and we shouldn't have. Please, Father, give us your Holy Spirit. Bless this place and let your Holy Spirit rest upon it. Glorify your name here. May Jesus above all things be the glory, the message, Father, the song, the highest praise in this place. And may you live in us. Please, God, forgive us, bless us, heal us. And now, Father, send us and use us. May this be a place where Christ Jesus is glorified. May this be a place where souls and sinners are healed. May this be a place of encouragement and help. And may we, Father, be holy and set apart for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Love somebody before you leave. And uh, choir practice. And so...
I'll tell you what, y'all take uh, 10 minutes off your choir practice next week. <laughs>